Welcome to Sin Talk. The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the eternal human nature. We'll think about humans and if there's such a thing as objective, unchanging human nature. Are human kinds different from natural kinds? Is human nature a construct and or a myth? Are there roots of our nature in nature? Would all men be tyrants if they could? Or are a few of us naturally psychopathic? Could humans be otherwise? Are only gods eternal? Are humans an integral part of nature? Are moral experiences universal? How do we think of our social, economic and political institutions in the light of these questions? Are we converging or diverging? And how will emerging technologies change us in the long run? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Milan Brahme, he teaches German at IIT Madras. His research interests are German language and literature and also education and pedagogy. Dr. Aditi Chaturvedi, she teaches philosophy at Azim Premji University in Bangalore. Her research interests are ancient Greek philosophy, philosophy of art and history of political thought. And Professor Chandran Kokadas, he is from Singapore Management University. His research areas are political philosophy. More specifically, he has written and thought about immigration and multiculturalism. So, uh, Chandran, why don't you set the ball rolling with you, perhaps with the simplest question which you've thought of for the longest. Is there such a thing as human nature at all? What comes to mind when you think of that straightforward but complex question? I think it's a very useful notion that we use to think about many subjects. Whether or not there is such a thing I think is... Uh, you mean in the realist sense? In the realist sense. Um, I think only to the extent that it's a, it's a concept that we've used in order to address a range of different questions. Because if, if you want to address any of a range of questions in, in ethics or political philosophy or for that matter in, in biology, we want to know what is constant and what is varied. Uh, what changes from time to time. So we want to ask questions about what's, what's constant. So the notion of human nature is a useful construct in that sense. Now, when you asked, is there an eternal human nature, then I think it's, there's a slightly different uh, question we have to consider, and that is, uh, you know, what we mean by eternal. That means uh, for the lifespan of the earth or longer or much less. Well, humans have only been on the planet for quite a short period of time, so it, it can't be eternal in the sense that it's there forever. So the, the question really there is, has it been constant for the entire existence of the species? And then you can have to start narrowing it down a little bit because when does the species begin? Because uh, 
you know, are we descended from the Neanderthals? Are we talking about humans and Neanderthals? Are we talking about something Overactive much narrower? Yeah. Exactly. So when we talk about human nature, I think really we're, we're, as political philosophers especially, or ethicists, or philosophers more generally, we're really interested in the question of, is there a constant nature for as long as we've been a certain kind of being? That for as long as we've been uh, creatures who've existed in communities together with language and with certain kinds of social structures. And there, my guess is that there is a kind of constant human nature. but Which doesn't mean that it's only constant. There's still something which is dynamic and there, changing. Exactly. And it also varies from, from place to place to some degree. The question then is, how much does it vary with geography, with culture, with... Uh, interaction among peoples of different kinds with language and so on. So th I think there is a constant, but the constant is uh, bounded by both time and by geography. And what's the best way to conceptualize it? So when you say there are things which are perhaps constant or unchanging and there are things which are changing, is it like a matter of degree or are there certain sorts of aspects or features that I are... I think it's partly a matter of degree to the extent that um, within uh, or among human beings, whatever characteristics we find among them, they exhibit them to varying degrees. For example, if we think about human nature along a psychological dimension, there are certain characteristics of human beings that are found everywhere. We've got the capacity for, for anger. We've got the capacity for empathy. Uh, we've got the capacity to love. But not everyone has it to the same degree, and the different elements, the different emotions, the different capacities to control ourselves, all of these vary across uh, people. Of course, one question is how much of this is a psychological trait, and how much of this is something that's shaped by your environment. Maybe some environments encourage you to be angry more often, and others incline you to be more pacific. There may be an underlying nature but the expression of that nature may depend very much on the context. So to some extent, it's difficult to say exactly what the core might be. There may be elements that arise or express themselves in different ways across different places and in different times. Cultural traditions, for example, may make a great difference if, let's say, you're an ancient Greek, certain kinds of values are much more significant on a courage might be values that are exhibited more readily there because the society almost demands it. But though the values don't pre-exist the human beings, the human beings kind they, of wire their norms and conventions and rituals and repeat behavior. I don't think they would pre-exist the human beings, but uh, even if they come into being only with the existence of human beings, they will emerge and be understood differently. It may be, for example, if you took an example like courage, in terms of courage as an emotion, it may be something that everybody has the capacity to feel. You may feel emboldened or you may feel withdrawn and anxious, but what kind of ways in which this is expressed is going to depend in part on the upbringing you've got. If you're trained like a Spartan, maybe even the most timid person will have greater courage exhibited in everyday um, activity right. or discourse. If you're brought up 
in a very different tradition that may never be expressed in that way, such that, say, someone from a Spartan tradition would think of everyone in that context as lacking in courage. So um, I think it's, and, it's and, difficult and, to disentangle all of these things. And I know you're not an evolutionary biologist or anything, but how, what are we like at birth? What are we like at, at birth? Uh, as in our individual births or the birth individual of the culture? Individual births. Are we, are we, so at this moment in time, a bunch of kids are being born in different parts of the world. Are they all, I th- yeah, I like, think are we, they all, is it like a big bang kind of thing? They're all very similar at birth and then very soon because of the culture, family, upbringing, etc., they diverge? I don't think we're blank slates. I don't think you can create anything out of someone who's born in a particular way. I don't think if I'd been born into the most musical family in the universe that I would be able to hold a tune. Uh, I would have no musical ability whatsoever, whatever the context. Uh, So it's not as if you could turn anybody into anything at birth. We're we're not just molds of plasticine. Uh, So in, in that sense, we're all different to some degree. But on the other hand, if you're the most musical person in the world and you grow up in a culture that doesn't value that or you know, is a culture where there's no capacity or opportunity to express it, this side of your nature will never, never emerge. Well, you've thought about education, pedagogy and all a little bit and some of these are like learnability kind of issues and what can be learned and not learned and so on. Like, where would it be on this specific? kind of question and what comes to mind? Yeah, it's not a very easy question to to answer. But I think I would go with what Chandran is saying in the sense that uh, that perhaps it's not as if we all of us are born with the same set of abilities or with the same uh, and uh, we, we evolve uh, depending upon the cultural milieu that we grow up in, depending upon our own um, are we are we are we largely biological entities when when we are born and then but of course we are born into a family and a certain culture and so on and then you go from there i think i'm just going to the big bang moment like the birth so you're saying we are all born with different kinds of innateness and would that be a result of gene and genetics and family and family line and things of that sort that's a very uh, that's very um, tricky sure um, path to take and I wouldn't want to take that path but I, what I mean is that there might be different uh, abilities that we are that we, we are born with or, or that are shaped by our environment very early on and depending on that maybe we evolve into beings uh, that are so diverse and so varied so um, in terms of education I was just talking to Aditi uh, while coming here about uh, something that we are interested in right now which is a multi-grade, multi-level pedagogy where we are trying to say that it is better to have children in mixed age groups at different levels of learning together so that each child learns at their own pace and also evolves at their own pace in, in terms of achieving certain learning goals and so on and so forth. So I think what where we probably go wrong is to put this kind of diversity which is there among children into one bunch of same-aged children together and then expect all of them to learn the same things over the same period of time. And so if, if we would allow for the child, let's say, over two or three years to grow at 
their own pace, then they would eventually learn those skills anyways. But that would be a, a much more natural way of learning them than compacting everybody into one single classroom. I mean, I, I'm just because you asked me about. That's interesting. You use the word natural there, but we'll get back to that. Aditi, why don't we go to you and to your world and the world you're familiar with? Greek philosophers and these, the Pythagoreans and people prior to that and around that and so on. Where are we on this human nature well, I'm not going to talk about the Pythagoreans because we know not very little about the Pythagoreans. I'm a, I'm a Pythagorean skeptic, at least a pre-Platonic Pythagorean skeptic. So leaving them aside. Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, if you can ask me to bring ancient Greece into it, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the origins, or the, the very idea of this term, nature, right? So human nature. Um, and you've got this Greek word, phusis, right? Which is then translated into Latin and then comes to us in English. So the idea, and I think what interests me throughout is why we use these concepts. When we talk about concepts like human nature. What's the point of it? When is it deployed? By whom? What are we trying to, what kind of work are we trying to do with it? Right? So I think phusis, right? The idea of nature in general on the one hand was distinguished on the one side from this word Techne, right, which is yeah. creation or craft. So something that's natural versus something that's crafted or created, artificial. Yeah. Right. And on the other hand, you've got fusus being distinguished from something like nomos, which is norms or conventions. Right. So what happens conventionally the versus what happens? Things. Yeah. The social versus the natural. Yeah. The natural versus the artificial. And that's pretty much how even now we talk about natures. Right. So coming back to the idea of eternality, I think I think it's something that um Shantan mentioned as well. It's, it's more about immutability than about eternality or about unchanging. So when you talk about why we want concepts like human nature, or at least people who've tried to claim that there is such a thing as human nature, want to claim that it can't be changed. I mean, and that again, that has all kinds of normative implications. And they want it to be that way because it serves all kinds of purposes, right? So you have someone, I mean, you could trace, of course, Plato which, gets... Which sorry. aspects are immutable? Well, what it is to be human, right? So. Typically, the way this gets done, and this is where the human part comes in, is you distinguish the human from the subhuman and the superhuman. What's subhuman? Non-human animals. What's superhuman? Well, God, gods, whatever you think is up there, right? Or down there or wherever, (laughs) all around us. Um, And then the idea becomes something like, well, um, what's higher than us? What do we have in common with what's higher than us? Well, reason, the capacity of reason to speak. So what do... You get lots of different accounts of it. It's not just reason, but you basically say, okay, here's what's... What's 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 so human nature then becomes often um, both in this kind of teleological sense, but also in kind of a normative teleological sense, uh, reasoning, language, speaking, all of that. So what do the gods have that humans don't have? Well, I mean, they have eternal life for one. <laughs> Presumably they're actually eternal. Uh, we, we, we don't have that. So, for example, for Aristotle, like how do we how do human beings imitate his divinity, the unmoved mover? Well, the unmoved mover is thought thinking itself. It's pure thought. Now, humans have this rational capacity in them. There's a part of them that, that has reason. So we imitate the unmoved mover by reasoning. Our plants imitate the unmoved mover by not moving because it's unmoved and so are plants. Animals do it through reproduction. That's as close as non-human animals get to immortality. Right? So we've got this idea, this, this kind of hierarchy of beings, as it were. And so we are kind of at the second level, just, just below what's divine. But so then human nature then becomes... But that understanding of human nature, right, is not at all empirical. It's this kind of idea of um, what, it's not just what we are, but what we ought to aspire towards. And this idea of trying to define what something is. So you make sure that it kind of becomes an exercise in defining what it is to be human, 
what is essentially human, find the human essence. And that's still being done by various thinkers in various ways. What we're looking for is something like the human function, right? So what it is to be human, well, you know, so for example, and in this case, the, 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 and, and then to be a flourishing human, right? So to, to be human is to reason, to be a flourishing human is to reason well. Uh, but then you can add to that. You can say to be human is to be X, Y, Z. You could think of Nussbaum's capabilities approach as doing a kind of collection of what it is to be human. And then, uh, but yeah, so that's, I think, sorry, that's gone a little all over the place. But um, And are there, are, there different, are there different kinds of humans? What do you mean by different kinds of humans? Do you... so is human monolithic? When we say human, human nature, men, women, children, it's, they, they would all be human in the same way. I mean, at least the at least the criticism. Okay, I'm gonna. I I mean, I don't have an answer for that myself, or other. I want to say, well, no, of course not. I'm not sure if I if I actually think there's such a thing as eternal, uh, immutable, etc. Human nature, but maybe that's not the that's not the point of the, the question as such. I think people who defend the idea of a human nature do think it's common to all people, right? So one way in which you could think of human nature being kind of normatively useful is it can ground, for example, theories of rights. Right? Mm. Human beings are this way, so all human beings should have these rights. And that includes everyone. So in some sense, human nature, this most abstract form, is something we all have, right? And it can also be used as a kind of basis for arguing for a kind of equality. Look, we're all basically the same, right? We're all members of the same species. Uh, fundamentally, you know, this is this is who we are. So we all ought to have. So you but can. There is there is progression in that thought, right? It wasn't this way two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. There's been like there were slaves at one point and so on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Perhaps so, there still are, but. Uh, right, right. No, but the idea of like who's who's human, even right, and who's included, and and uh, all of that. Of course, that's that's. Uh, Where yeah. are you on this, Milan? No, I mean, I would like to come in here and say that even today, not just two thousand years ago. I mean, even today, there is a very, very targeted dehumanization of of people, of of human beings, even uh, in in several political theaters in in the world today. And uh, I mean, I, I I'm uh, I'm quite with Aditi on this. That I mean, I'd, I would rather talk in terms of uh, whether we can talk about human consciousness, mm -hmm. whether uh, the fact that we are conscious of ourselves as human beings, and uh, Coming from a literary perspective, I also think of literature and art as as having a function of uh, making human or becoming human. So, which means that there is what, a, what do you mean? Yeah, in the sense of uh, relating to the other, being able to relate to the other, to the unknown, and uh, not wanting to reduce the unknown always in terms of the known and uh, bringing it under your control uh, or wanting to bring it under your control, letting the other be, but also um, being open to its... Um, so being human also, in, in the sense, becomes being open to something that is not known and something you don't want to always dominate and control, but letting it be. Uh, this is still very abstract, I think, but I think we'll get somewhere. No, but if, we, if you think of the history of this thought, because these things that you say today, they kind of make sense. Would this have made sense a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago? Because there's progression in the thought, if you know what I mean. This whole idea of human. I don't know if there there is progression, this change, but I'm not sure if it's progression. Is there, because... is there greater encapsulation more and more? I, like, for I example, this, so. you, you go mean, back to the Greeks, yeah. ancient Greeks, there were slaves and... Yeah. Were, they thought, were the slaves thought of as humans? Yeah. Yeah. I think a part of what uh, Milland is getting at is that the idea of what is human is contested, and in part, I would maybe add, and I think you'd probably agree, 
is that the content is often shaped or advanced by people with a particular interest or a mission. Right, right. You want to categorize certain people as human because you want to be able to say that others are not, and this is going to serve your ends in some way. Similarly, uh, you know, there's an interest in saying something not only about what people are like now that would qualify them as humans, but what are the appropriate ends for human beings, because this also allows you to exercise some control. So, to some extent, the what do you understanding... Mean by appropriate ends? So, you want to say, for example, that human beings are fit to do certain things, and if they don't do certain things, they don't realize their nature. If they don't realize their nature, then they're somehow doing something that's wrong. So, we, whether it is an authority or influence, want to make a case for controlling those people to make sure that they behave as human beings should do, so that they realize their, their ends. They, they do the sorts of things that are appropriate to human beings. And you could make this argument from, for example, a religious perspective. If right. you want to say, if you don't behave in this kind of a way, if you don't achieve these goals or seek these goals, attain a certain kind of spirituality, for example, then you're not being properly human. So we need to shape our institutions. Are these invariably linked to notions of afterlife and so on? I, I think not necessarily, because not all religious traditions have a notion of, uh, of the afterlife, but they have an understanding of what is appropriate for a human being. I mean, the Greeks, for example, have you know, this understanding of final cause that uh, makes it crucial to understand a human being in terms of what is the purpose of a human being, not purpose in the sense of what is the goal of an individual, but a purpose in the sense of what is this thing fit for? Uh, now, it's not an understanding that we invoke very much explicitly today, but I think it's sometimes implicit in a lot of things that, uh, that leaders say or philosophers say when they try to Know, defend a case for saying that some sorts of things are appropriate and others are not. That's not the right way to live, you want to say. You know, I think even someone like Martha Nussbaum, who's very open to a wide range of uh, ways of thinking, in a sense, having the capabilities approach is saying, well, you know, this is what a human being is. Yeah. And one has to ask, well, why are we actually engaged in this? Uh, are we that much determined? And this is the other thing about nature. Um, for a there, lot of people, what they want to oh. find in nature is uh, some kind of moral determination. Uh, whereas what's more characteristic of the modern world is that they look at nature and see that nature actually has no moral guidance to offer. And this is a big source of, I think, controversy. I think that's, if I could just kind of come in there, I mean, I... I I agree with you on both points. I think what's interesting, um, at least as it is one place where Nussbaum kind of distinguishes between a kind of internalist and an externalist uh, understanding of the human essence. Right. So you have the kind of Aristotelian, Greek, but then also early modern thought as well, this idea of determining from the outside, someone deciding this is what it is to be human. So even if you look at the Declaration of the Rights of Man, uh, man, not woman, <laughs> it was that was that was uh, it was humans later. Um there's this idea of what it is to be human, and there's something almost there's something, there's something very unpleasant about the perfectionism that that seems to entail. But 
I, I like the part where she says that to understand what it is to be human instead of deciding or imposing from the outside, we could just look at what people value. We could collect stories from people around the world, look what these stories have in common. I mean, okay, maybe there's something not quite right about the methodology there, but it seems to be at least something that I think even anthropologists who tend to dislike talk of human nature would nonetheless be friendly towards, or at least the, I would hope, but the idea there seems to be not so much let's impose from the outside. So, I mean, I, I agree that there's this danger with human nature, and I think that's very evident in someone like Aristotle and thought following on from Aristotle of saying, well, this is what you should be, and if you aren't, and using that then to discriminate and saying, well, this is what happened, for and example, is that, with women. Is that like binary? Like you are human, non-human, or there's a hazy... Well, human or lesser human, right? I mean, but, 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 but typically all? reason has a lot to do with it, right? So for the longest time, women were, you know, seen as irrational and, you know, therefore were deprived of all kinds of rights because they were, they were incapable of reason. Women, children, right? They, 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 they couldn't do that. I mean, they didn't, properly speaking, have souls. They weren't persons, right? So that, I mean, so in a way, once you say this is, and that's kind of how this kind of dualism can be, can be used to oppress, but it can also, in a sense, be liberatory. So I think if you, if you look from the inside rather and say, okay, here's what humans value, Maybe, uh, uh, and, and the normative lesson we draw from that is not, this is how you ought to be, but historically across cultures, this, this is, is what humans, this is how you have, this is what you have valued. Exactly, we should have a society that enables you to pursue these things should you wish. So instead of saying you should do this, but yeah, how do you kind of get the good uh, without the bad is what's kind of unclear, right? I mean, of course, we don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater, but it seems that... Um, the bathwater is pretty awful, so <laughs> you know it's hard to find the baby. Uh, I, I mean, I I think uh, just to continue from there, the, when we draw an inference uh, after after having um, observed all this, I think it it might be helpful to draw an inference that is not too assertive, that is a little more like a question, in the sense of okay, this is what people have valued over generations, over thousands of years. Now let us look at it. I mean, let us just take a look at what it is and. Uh, what is it that you would like to pursue? I mean, should you want to, as you said, but also that I, I think uh, it is important or it, it is it is definitely, quote unquote, useful to go into this and look at what people have valued. But then again, this is this is a non-hierarchical kind of position, or some, some kind of humanism where I would think so. I mean, uh, I would think it would be non-hierarchical also in terms of uh, that, then it, that would have to extend everywhere, right? Like no high art, low art, no high. I mean, it have to go in all directions and all forms of human creation. And I mean, you're you're from the literary world, and there are classics which are written by Homer and whatever. <laughs> then there's some tribal guy you're familiar with, and you know other lesser. And now, of course, these are classification schemes, and from an anthropological lens, who does the classifying? I mean, the tribal guy is not something lesser at all. I mean, I one thing I wanted to say to uh, to what Aditi said is also that that women were considered not capable of reason. But I mean, we are now thinking of reason itself in a different manner. There is why why is it that when we think no, the of, question is that then you had to change the meaning of reason to uh, include. So the question is, when we think of reason, why is it uh, that it is almost always a disembodied idea? That is, reason is something abstract in the mind, whereas it has nothing to do with the body. Whereas reason is very much, uh, if it is a human attribute, it is very much coming from an embodied being, you know, in that sense. So then so, the extension of that would be that women, if there is such a category, uh, 
think in a different kind of way or reason in a different kind of way. I'm, I'm not sure that that's a role. No, that it follows directly follow. from that. that. Follow. I don't see how it follows. Because, because if not, reasoning not is... Not only women have bodies, <laughs> everyone has bodies. <laughs> of course. So I'm not sure how it follows from what Milan says. No. I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't, I wouldn't I'm, I'm just trying to say that there is, there is no single uh, notion or let's say it was definitely a male-dominated notion of reason. Right. Uh, that is all that, that I'm saying. I, mean, I think historically, I think... I'm, I'm not sure if I'm interpreting correctly, but I think... There has been this association, at least, of uh, men with the intellect and women with the somatic. And there's been this kind of, which is, is obviously false, right? Because we're all, uh, you know, embodied uh, minds, souls, whatever it is you think right. there is brains. I have, I have maybe no, maybe yeah. what this goes back to is one of the questions that you started off with, uh, which was the idea that human nature was possibly eternal. I think the understanding of reason that Milland is uh, criticizing or rejecting uh, is the idea of reason that something stands over and above human beings that is there as something abstract and eternal that we somehow need to figure out how to get access to. So Plato starts doing yeah, this the by appealing world, yeah. to, the, to the notion of forms. You know, here's a way we can categorize our understandings because we could appeal to this thing which is completely separate from uh, and independent of us. Later philosophers, Kant most strikingly maybe, says, well, maybe all of these categories, all these understandings are things that we impose on the world. We exist apart from it, but we impose our understanding on the rest of reality to, to make it uh, understandable. In the 20th century and 19th, really, philosophers, mostly Germans, I think, turned around and said, well, actually, maybe we're actually embedded in the world. So reason and nature are entangled. They're not things that are there separately. Reason is not something that we try to access in order to understand nature. Nature and reason are all a part of the same thing. We are embedded in this. We're trying to make sense of ourselves. But in trying to make sense of ourselves, we should not see ourselves as something existing apart from nature. So this gives us that different understanding of reason. It doesn't mean that you abandon logic. It doesn't mean that you abandon reasoning as such. But it's a rejection of the idea that reason is, is an abstract kind of exercise. In fact, since you speak about the German tradition, especially in the, uh, since the late 18th and through the 19th century, when you have the German Romantic tradition, which is, and, and even, even pantheism is so much a, a part of that tradition, in the sense of uh, not only is, are we embedded in nature, but so is divinity, actually, in the sense, uh, it, it's not something different from what exists, and we are not also different from what exists, in that, that kind of a thing, and, uh, and very much questioning the position of the human as superior to the nature around that is there very much in the the romantic tradition within German philosophy mm. through the 19th century. But I think it's the Christian tradition that really takes the Platonic understanding and emphasizes this division between the human world and the world beyond. So the gods then are really, uh, or the god, is separate from the human world. But it's it's really a very Platonic kind of idea. But it's not in keeping with, say, I think, for example, uh, the ancient Greek traditions or, for that matter, the 
um, you know, the, the, the Hindu traditions. I'm not sure I'd agree with that, Chandran, actually. Yeah. So I think, I mean, so Isn't for example... Isn't there a link so, directly, but yeah, please come I on. mean, I, I wouldn't think there's a direct link. I mean, again, I'm going to be, I'm a very conservative when it comes to direct links. We have no evidence. Sure. So there are, of course, parallels, but there are other explanations for those parallels. So I would be hesitant to claim any direct links between India and But the whole point of like the sovereign kings and so on, acting oh, on behalf of the there, gods there, and... There and so many explanations for that other than direct links. So sure. I mean, but that's yeah, that's that's going to be slightly slightly sidetracking. I mean, I think talking responding to both points, right? So I think even in Plato, um, the idea is, I mean, of course, I mean, and Plato, I'm taking him because he's the easiest punching bag. He's not just thinking of reason as this purely abstract thing. Even in the Timaeus, which was the one work that survived all through the medieval period, it was hugely influential because it was translated into Latin for. Early Christianity, also for Islam, uh, it you know, so it it's not just Christianity either. Even in the Timaeus, there's this idea that what we have, there's this world soul, it has a certain harmonic mathematical structure. Right. And the human soul has that same structure. And when that soul is embedded in the human body, it's the presence of the human body that throws those harmonies into disarray. It's what disrupts this beautiful harmonic structure. And then what we do through reasoning or through this kind of appeal to a higher powers, which is something, of course, picked up on through the centuries by people, distinction between higher and lower pleasures, all the way down to mill and beyond. Uh, but the idea there is that we try to reabsorb the structure as embodied creatures. So the, the fact of embodied reason or us as, as being, as having these embodied souls, I think it's there even and in Plato. And it's the same cosmic order or same cosmic structure that is manifesting in Humans? Yeah, so we have the exact, so when the when the lesser gods make us, so we are made of the same, exact same structure as the soul of the world. We have the same structure. It's just that our harmonies are disturbed by the body, which is then, of course, that reaches its kind of apex in Neoplatonism, early Christianity, where you basically have Plotinus more or less calling matter evil. So then that's, that's going very, very far. And then that influences a whole chain of thought. But even with Hindu thought, if you look at Upanishadic notions of the self, Right, the, the the idea of what the self is, what we truly are, it's it's always what's immaterial. And but are the gods that, the spirits, or are, don't, don't the gods have bodies? Ah, oh God! Uh, again, these I know these are not straight. <laughs> very very complex theological no, questions. Because right? it kind of follows again from where you were. Because if if the divine is well, the divine is better because it's because again here I think the idea throughout is whatever lives longest, whatever is most eternal is best. The gods, right, and then. A certain part of us can do that. I mean, even in Jainism, which is one of the most pantheistic religions there is, and you have these jivas, there's a hierarchy of beings. Yeah. Right. So you have the one, two, three, four, five, and, and six. And they're so privileged think, rejecting the body and all that, right? Right. And towards. so you have, I mean, so I think there are very few religions uh, that don't, in fact, have this idea of there's something better about the rational part of us or this aspect of the our body being. is somehow messy, right, vulgar. Because it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's changeable. It's constantly changing. It varies. It causes disturbance. The goal is to, of course, it's it's who we are. But the goal remains somehow transcended or to act in spite of it. Right? Matter remains this thing that's. So I think it's not just. I mean, my only kind of yeah, my only slight kind of pushback. I think I agree with the broader claims you're making. I think it's not just Christianity. I think it's a lot of other traditions. Don't we end up um, leaning back on biology quite a bit? And, you know, obviously there's a ton of this thing with evolutionary biology in particular when you talk of human nature. Um, and if we've genuinely evolved in the Darwinian sense and natural selection and all that has happened along the way, then there can't be such a thing as human nature, no? I'm like, it, Or if nothing else, it should have evolved into 
or perhaps like you started off, Chandran, the things which are constant and the things that have changed? Yes, I, I think even if things evolve, it's something that's evolving. So the thought is, you know, what is it that's the constant that's changing? Uh, if you simply have a move from one thing to another, that's not evolution. That's just there are two different things. So then the question is, what exactly is it that's evolving? And so once again, if we start with uh, biological humans, the question for us is, to what extent has the evolution of that physical being resulted in a transformation of, of its human nature? nature? Yeah. Uh, in, in some form, in some form, some more fundamental sense. So I think so is there, a morality, is a moral, so, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think we're not interested there in biological e evolution because biological evolution takes much too long, and we haven't been around for long enough for us to have evolved biologically. We're not like dinosaurs changing into birds that will need billions of years. In a few hundred thousand years, we haven't evolved biologically. But we have evolved socially. Yeah. So the question there then seems to me to be, has that social evolution also had an impact, some kind of transformation of yeah. our psychologies and our, you know, and our kind of consciousness? What's the answer? Yeah. What's the answer? Um, I don't know, but I can make some guesses. Yeah, okay? let's go um, over that. My, my guess is that we haven't evolved uh, psychologically as much as um, you might think because the, the basic elements that we see in human behavior as we've had it described in the literatures of the world show a lot of constancy. We can read uh, ancient Greek literature or ancient Chinese literature or ancient Indian literature and we can recognize the people. Yeah, we the can recognize the people, their the psychologies. Yeah, yeah. They, we can recognize their emotions. We can recognize what moves them. So to that extent, in the um, realm of human recorded experience, it seems to me there is an underlying uh, consistency. Would you agree with that, Milan? Like the classics, like in the literary sense, things that go back. Many centuries, no centuries is nothing on an evolutionary time scale, but somehow. Very often we, 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 have, we have spoken in terms of generation X and generation Y and generation Z now or Z. And people say, is there a mutation now in generation <laughs> Z? Do they not fi find value in anything that we found value in, etc., etc.? But I'm, I'm uh, not uh, inclined to actually believe in that in the sense that if, if one, uh, I, I do have uh, a lot of faith in our students. Uh, so to say that they will also eventually um, find things of value in what uh, whatever we found value in, and I'm uh, I would go uh, quite with what Chandran is saying in the sense that I can still relate to literary texts, to philosophical texts from a completely different time uh, and culture. Even I mean I I um, so over this past few thousand years, I suppose we have not really uh, changed psychologically as much as we might think we have. What implication does it have for our political forms, the way we organize ourselves? Like, what's that mapping? Or what's that, how do you think of that, Aditi? Is there a mapping, like the way we think of human nature, whatever the conception might be, how does that, on a downstream basis, end up influencing the way 
societies are formed social groups are formed how we organize ourselves political I might be more political equipped. order <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not the I'm not the best political, person to political yeah, thought, well, political well, thought. I feel, but okay <laughs> uh with the proper deference uh, I mean of course hugely right I mean it seems that some conception of human nature or some beliefs implicit or expressed about what human nature is lie the basis of a lot of not just kind of normative political theories but other kinds of normative theories right so to some extent there's a slight worry about this kind of shift from the is to the ought but it's not so much that we are this way and we ought to be this way it's more we are this way and this constrains what we can do right so it's more about yes yeah, it's, it's more about the can do constraining the can right so what's possible constrains what's desirable so in some sense uh, a lot of theories use ideas of human nature to to limit what we can ask of human beings so if human beings are essentially warlike well we you know we have to have a different kind of theory and if human beings are essentially peaceful we need some kind of theory so it's it's been used uh, but of course a hugely conflicting notions of what human nature is right so you've got some people claiming and this is there's lots of places where this comes out quite um you know so you've got you've kind of the whole you've got the whole this is one i i love the the persian letters of um montesquieu where he has this letter on the troglodytes and there's basically an attack on this kind of hobbesian notion of our people are. and you've got in the 18th century a lot of that right kind of claims about explicit claims about human nature uh but even i think in more recent thought even if it's not expressed in so many terms people aren't making such generalizations we're turning more and more to some extent biology and science because it seems like a surer basis for making claims about human nature um and again i think that's that there are lots of worrying aspects to that as well but i think we're no longer at the point of making just speculations about and this goes all the way back even in lucretius his whole account of how societies came to be is kind of an early precursor to social contract theory you've have it in lucretius as well all kinds of claims about what people are like and that kind of constrains um how societies are formed uh i th- and i think we're still doing that today but does one need to have a theory of human nature to have political thoughts to think of political forms is that necessary i think political leaders generally don't have uh, theories but there are exceptions um i think for example in the marxist tradition both of thought and political action the underlying uh, way of thinking was that the kind of human beings that have evolved or have emerged is a reflection of the kind of society that had emerged and so the transformation of society would produce a new kind of human being a kind of human being that could be free but in order to make them free what you'd have to do is destroy the previous kinds of structures so so marx's revolution would accomplish this but what you'd also need to do is effect a kind of transformation through this of human nature the ultimate end would be a new kind of world with a new kind of human being now that's one way of thinking about it so that would necessarily it. be with a new kind of structure with new structures as well but another way of thinking about it would be to say the structures have distorted our nature uh, so what we've got to do some work in order to make sure that nature is not uh, wrongfully transformed or prevented from emerging so you know some traditions some religious traditions might emphasize the importance of somehow going back to nature and learning what nature has to tell us in order to create the institutions that would you know create the common good and then allow you know humans to flourish the way they 
they really were meant to. So I think, for example, the Catholic tradition that drew on uh, Aristotle and Aquinas uh, found a great challenge posed to them philosophically by Hobbes and Hume, who rejected all of this naturalism and started theorizing about the world as something that's the product of human will. It's all artificial. It's all the creation of human will. I don't think politicians or political leaders could really turn to this uh, theory in order to advance their cause. What they would mostly have been looking for is, okay, what advantage would it give me if this is the language I should be speaking? Oh, so, so it's all instrumentalized to an end. I think than, very much so. Rather than being... Even within the Marxist tradition, of course, I think there, there is a kind of ideological uh, underpinning. But at the same time, people who, are, uh, who go yeah. into political power, they also invariably have their own agendas, their own interests. They may tell this story, they may repeat it, but that doesn't mean that what, everything they'll do will be towards this end. Even the most fervent ideologue also has a family, has friends, has you know, needs of various kinds. And at some point, the trade-off will not be to the advantage of the ideology. Can I narrate a very small episode, the end of a play by the Austrian-German playwright uh, Horvath, Jürgen von Horvath. He wrote a play in the 1930s, I think. Uh, it, is, it is an apocryphal play to the marriage of Figaro. It is, the play is called Figaro Gets a Divorce. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and so Figaro, who is in the service of this... Um, well, um, what is a graph? A graph is a, is, is a nobleman, uh, ruler of a small principality, a duke. And uh, then the revolution happens, and then the duke and his family, they have to go, they're banished from their own kingdom. And Figaro being his uh, personal assistant, Figaro makes sure that the, that the duke and the duchess and all of them get to safety in a different place. But then he comes back and he... Uh, becomes a person of some repute and some power in the new system, in the same kingdom. And then eventually when things settle so down... The, so the Dutch, who comes back? Figaro. Figaro comes back and then he joins the new revolutionary administration and all that and all that. And then eventually he also brings the Duke and the Duchess back. And then the Duke asks him, uh, so now um, you're bringing back to the old uh, kingdom... So is the revolution finally defeated? So Figaro says, no, it is only now the revolution has really won that it doesn't feel the need to imprison and kill people who are yeah. just happen to be its so-called enemies. That's the last line of the play or something similar to that last line of the play. And uh, the, by then the Duke is quite senile. So I don't think he understands what Figaro is saying, but what Figaro is saying is, is quite profound actually in the sense that now it is only when uh, you don't feel the need to, um, to use the guillotine that the revolution has actually succeeded. Yeah. So that was the end of uh, that play. Yeah, while the people that you would have killed with the guillotine are still around, more importantly. Interesting. Where are you on the human nature question? What do you think is the case? Not what Plato thinks or, <laughs> or thought. Or, wow, having to say what I think. Like, is that's, there that's, such a thing as human nature? That's a, that's a novelty. I think I'm quite a chandran on this question. I think the idea of it being a construct. and a, the, Although, so 
I, I have thought for the longest time that it is a useful construct, but I think it depends largely on what we understand by it. So I think human nature can be a very dangerous construct when misused. It can be a useful construct when appropriately used. Who decides what's appropriate and what isn't an appropriate use of it? Uh, and that, and that's kind of where, of course, the whole mess lies, right? So um, I am, to an extent, an anti-realist about human nature. I do not think that human nature is something that, to kind of take the two axes of realism, I don't think it's something, and again, I, I, I'm a, a constructivist, so I think it exists only mind-dependently, right? So I don't think it's non-existent uh, and mind, so I think it's, it's kind of mind-dependent existent and thus a construct. Uh, but but nonetheless, I have doubts. Or Mind dependent, say, socially constructed, context dependent, all of that. But I mean, so those are yeah, some but, different things. But I think, uh, well, at least my view is, if I can remain agnostic on the question of how useful it is, or if maybe we could talk about how useful it is, because it's also been misused, I think. And again, the idea of uh, kind of going back to the idea of people just using it to push whatever ideology they want, I think that's a real concern. So it's it's often it's often used as a kind of a justification. Uh, for having a certain set of measures, and you say, well, you have to do this because people are like that, right? Even at the level of, say, universities and rules they make about students, right? Their claims, well, students are like that. People are like that. You can't expect them to be otherwise. Yeah, certain kind of normativity creeps right. in everywhere. And this goes so. back to the whole thing of nature versus, versus convention because the idea is what's natural, right? It's necessary in some sense, whereas what's not natural could be otherwise. So you can't change what's necessary, but yes, that seems to be the yeah, idea. Exactly. So you That's have to... The- so you have to make rules and laws taking that into account. But then what is and isn't in fact necessary, right? So we come right back to the... Where are uh, you on this question, Milan? I think we have... Do you I think mean, there is such a thing as human nature? Uh, no, I would go along with that uh, line of argument also in the sense that I, I don't think there is something that is uh, human nature that's out there. And then, But I think the fact that we came together here and we talked about whether there is human nature... Uh, something called the eternal human nature, I think that itself is a part of the construct that human nature could be. I mean, the fact that we have been having this dialogue in a, in a fairly open fashion, in a fairly unstructured and uh, as frank as possible, as honest as possible, that kind of fashion, I think that itself is, a, is one of the constructions of what human nature could be. So I am also not, uh, is that a realist position that something is out there I also would, would not uh, say that there is something that's permanent and uh, this thing out there because it is deployed in very, very destructive ways. Uh, the assumption that there is something that is there and uh, it's just like that. So you have if, to do it. But you're not you, saying that because you feel anxious that if there were to be something called human nature that it might be deployed and manipulated by others or people. And you're not saying that out of anxiety because eventually one is seeking truth rather than Comfort. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so uh, if, but, if you uh, know what I mean. But but I mean I I'm I'm not I'm not really uh, seeking a permanent truth, an immutable permanent truth. But I'm I'm seeking more more than that. I'm seeking a a truthful moment. Let's say, uh, with uh, in that sense. The way that you've uh, phrased the question, which is a very uh, common way of phrasing the question, what is human nature, itself pushes us to to look for a general answer. When there is but, no general answer. Well, because, the, the, even yeah. if there were such a thing as a general answer, I wonder whether we'd get a different kind of uh, set of answers if we looked at it in a slightly different way and asked what kinds of assumptions are out there in the world when people are 
acting, whether individually or institutionally. And here, I think we see everywhere assumptions about the way people are. For example, when you when you're designing uh, roads, you want to make some assumptions about how people behave to make sure that they don't have accidents. If you want to make sure that people clean up after one another, you can have rules that impose penalties. You can also have incentives that track their behavior. You know, the whole thing in contemporary economics about nudging rather than forcing is all predicated on a certain kind of understanding of our nature. Now, you can ask, is this eternal? Uh, and that's one kind of question. But you can also ask, well, what would be some useful things to understand about the way people act that will help us decide how we're going to engage with them, whether we're as institutional designers or we're just trying to get our students to do their essays and submit them on time. You know, We all, as teachers, have various techniques. All of them have their advantages, but they, they all fail to some degree because not every student is the same. You know, if you, if you give them a penalty for lateness, they'll game that. If you gave them an advantage for early submission, they'd game that. Is this telling us something about human nature? Well, um, in a way, intuitively, we understand it. But if we want to develop it into a theorem, that's another matter altogether, because it could be that we've got such a messy, complicated theorem that it doesn't have any practical kind of use. So, you know, I, I, no, what's I think... What's the most general truthful thing that can be said? So forget human nature, let's say. Would it be fair to say that almost all humans are... I mean, you want to live longer, be happy. Like, what's what? You know, I, I think I'm, you could say like a the few most things. general things that I, I would say this is very economistic. I would say a couple of things. One is humans respond to incentives, and I would say that the incentives matter at the margin because when people make trade offs, they make trade offs at the margin, not about, you know, in general terms. This is why, as economists would, will tell you, diamonds cost more than than water, because at the margin, they're more valuable. In a different context, water would be much more valuable. If you're in the desert, one guy's got a bunch of diamonds and another guy's got bottles of water. The guy in the desert with the water is the guy who's going to be rich. So it depends on the context. Both, in a way, reflect something about uh, human behavior. Partly it's biological need. But you know, some guys might be saying, you know, I'll take the risk I'll, uh, I'll take the risk that I'll die of thirst, but I'll get these diamonds for cheap because I can change my diamonds into water. Um, all of this is a reflection of our nature, but if you want a form of theorizing, if I just said incentives matter and things work at the margin, I'm not sure whether this is specific enough to be useful, uh, whether it's enough to, you know, to be um, a guide to anything. It's very, very generalized. But I think there's, there is some you know, utility to it. Why make that leap in the first place? I mean, so really, I, I like, and I think this is the kind of thing that I think Jim Geertz was pointing at. And he says, sure, you can look at people, you can study people, and you can arrive at all kinds of generalizations about how they behave, highly contingent, mm -hmm. right? Highly contingent yeah. to all kinds of things, to time, place, all yeah, of individual that. Individual psychology. All of yeah. those things, right? But you can nonetheless arrive at some... Kind of predictions that people 
at such and such time and such and such place behave in such and such way when presented with this why make the leap from that to human nature i suppose right yeah, so why why why, why come seems, up with the yeah because it's why seems, come up with the theory because what you described at least the usefulness aspect is captured by that without needing to add this additional thing when you say human nature which can then be misused and deployed in all kinds of ways that i think you know not many of us wouldn't be comfortable with um yeah so i said i mean that that seems to me to be a reason in fact of of um i mean i would say that that's a pretty great argument for saying it's not a very useful construct that i mean it is a construct but it's one that does more damage than good and maybe we should just talk of generalizations and predictions and not talk about nature at all in that case right because this is anything but necessary immutable so why why nature at all so the only thing that worries me about a move such as that is that uh, over the years i found that that could be said about just about every concept we've ever deployed once we philosophers get into it and deconstruct them and critique them and uh, uh analyze them we find that they're all not fit for purpose because they've all got these weaknesses so we'll soon have no language <laughs> so at least i think we could say about human nature that it's it's created a decent conversation mm, um you know it's uh, i think investigating it has led us to some kind of understanding of uh, how it might be abused where it's not so useful what things might be useful instead so i wouldn't throw it out it's you know I, this baby i'd keep with the bathwater <laughs> even no i think your point i mean it's also true that because we've been talking because you said we philosophers have realized that you know all of us in this room like we're you know we all coming from a very different we, this has been a very secular conversation um we 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 interrupt you already yeah, yeah. there's this thing that people say about models that all models are wrong but some are useful so uh well, I'm not sure I agree with that <laughs> uh, it might be a moral realist actually but uh but no i i, I we, this has we 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 barely brought religion into it right so i yeah. i think one mm-hmm. of the things of saying okay let's not talk about human nature at all is ignoring uh the majority of the people who live on this planet who have strong religious beliefs so the very idea of the world i mean the source of morality nature, and moral experience all of that is to a large right, extent to some extent but at least only the idea of like of of who they should be what they should aspire towards this kind of sense of what is to be a person um i think if you say well yeah this is a, this is a useless concept but it's clearly not in fact it's on in practice useless um then maybe we could say there are certain domains in which it could be harmful so at least i think for me i would say one of my targets one of the things that that worries me is and i think this again picks up on some of your earlier questions is determinism of various kinds right because to some extent again going back to necessity i think what worries us often is when we are told something is necessary it can't be changed and that seems in some way to constrain our freedom yeah but and and so the idea of human nature has been used by people for example who are say uh genetic determinists right yeah. you have a gene for everything and of course you've got people like lewontin amongst others you've biologists who've shown that that way of thinking about science is actually bad science but nonetheless it continues to be used in these quarters so maybe certain uses of human nature are worrying i don't know how where you stand on people like steven pinker but uh i find for example some of the arguments at least in blank slate even if i i mean again I, i'm being somewhat agnostic whether or not we are in fact blank slates um i find some of his arguments are actually doing more harm than good in his use of human nature. Yeah, uh, I didn't much care for the I, I for the blank slate, I have to say, but I I think the argument in the blank slate that really struck me as particularly poor was actually it was an example he gave about when the police went on strike. 
in a city and crime rates rose. And he concluded from this that uh, what keeps us together is force. And I thought that's just a poor bit of reasoning. The inference is, is not correct yeah. because it's not as if um, pure force could keep us all together. What does keep us together is uh, our sociability. That's what keeps us abiding by the rules, being kind to one another and so on. But at the margins, you know, some people will take advantage if there isn't an appropriate you know, amount of force used, if there aren't threats and so on. Both of these things are true. It doesn't mean that one example throws out the whole other side of the theory. And so I, I felt that his reasoning was very much like this, you know, very uh, either or. Well, there are many aspects to our sociability. Um, you know, I, th I think we are extremely social creatures, but we also constantly testing the boundaries of social norms. I mean, we're, there's an anarchistic side to our, our nature as well. You know, what is it that holds us together as social beings? Well, it may be a certain amount of force because some people will press against it otherwise, but it's also, you know, other things. It's our capacity for, you know, mutuality. That's also a part of it. Yeah. Um, so I think to, you know, to try to look for the single keys, that's where the mistake is. What are the open questions? What lies ahead? What lies ahead for us as a species? On this human nature and, question. On human nature? Well, for as long as philosophers em are employed, we'll definitely keep talking keep, keep about this. Keep the question. This. Yes, we've, uh, we've got to keep the question going. What Otherwise, lies ahead, Milan? Yeah. As long as I can teach German language, it's fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> as long as Google Translate doesn't replace me, it's okay. <laughs> what lies ahead, Aditi? We'll end with that. Uh, what lies ahead? I don't know. Uh, climate catastrophe. So I'm not sure who'll be talking about human nature in a in a in a hundred years. But yeah, as long in as in a hundred years, oh well, yeah, oh. I'm a I'm a I'm a real climate pessimist. Uh, so yeah, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I'm a terrible person to end with because it's it's, it's oh, a very depressing. We need to get to ten thousand episodes. This is one seventy ninth. So we, okay, we'll, well, we'll get there. Get cracking. <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> Anyway, that's a good note to end on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward Thank to having, having this us. on again. Thank, yeah. you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's a real pleasure.